0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. be seated. It is dangerous to assume those of you who know the risque way to break that word into three parts <laughs> Those of you who don't know that of which I speak well might, just might, now have even more of your attention. <laughs> so the sermon will now begin. It is dangerous to assume, however. Unfortunately, I'm guilty of assuming. what I'm getting at is that I think that you all know what is going on in this brain of mine. I don't know what is going on in this brain of mine, and for good reason. Give me a chance to explain. There used to be this spot in my brain medically known as a cavernous malformation. It's a spot that's not supposed to be there. A tumor, though not cancerous in my case. It is this abnormal cluster of blood vessels that looks like a raspberry. And a cavernous malformation is usually encircled by what is called a hemosiderin ring, a ring of blood. That also is not supposed to be there, and both of these unwanted objects in the brain usually make their presence known, minded in the midst of what I'm doing right now. Rudely enough, my first seizure was made manifest in a pulpit, in a sermon, nine years ago, in the month of August. Since then, I've had four distinct neurosurgeries. To remove that cavernous malformation and hemosiderin ring, which were at the very bottom of my left temporal lobe, left (laughs) frontal lobe, just above my temporal lobe. It was deep down there. None of the surgeries, from simple to sophisticated, have been successful on their own. It has taken a combination of those four surgeries and endless rounds of experimental medication <laughs> as an and aside. Yes, I know about medical marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> it has taken endless rounds of experimental medication to finally get those seizures somewhat under control and here's the point you can laugh all you want if it ain't working here it ain't working here I don't need to give you a description use your imagination <laughs> so where am I going with this? Now, St. Paul in his letters to those infant churches often use the image of the church being the body of Christ. So guess what or who is the head of the church? Like many churches, we put that answer in bold print on the back of the bullet. St. Paul writes it this way. Quote, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together by every ligament with which it is equipped, and each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building of itself in love. I can preach with complete confidence that there's nothing wrong with the head of the church. Ain't nothing wrong with Jesus. Perfect Jesus, nevertheless, chooses to be in a partnership with an imperfect people. Now, I've just survived, I mean, returned from this phenomenon that now appears on the front of t-shirts. It's called the world's longest yard sale. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> to one degree or another, humanity is represented in both buyers and sellers. We were on the seller part of it. Now, fortunately, some prejudices were wiped out. Unfortunately, some stereotypes were reinforced. See, my family and I met a lot of nice people, but we also met some of the biggest jerks. And I will certainly confess that I was not always at my nicest. Remember what I preached about a minute ago? Perfect Jesus chooses to be in a partnership with imperfect people in buyer and in seller, in nice and in jerk. God has always wanted to be in a relationship with humanity. God has willingly done so. God has Came in the flesh. Now think back on the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not not portraying these incredibly mature followers or disciples of Jesus. In fact, they all deserted him when Jesus needed them the most. Right before he was crucified, so, and I'm not being sarcastic here, that means that means that there truly is hope for all of us. Because they all began to grow into maturity, but The church tradition has it that it cost them everything, including their very lives. And one of Jesus' followers wrote, These words that we heard read to us this morning while he was literally in prison. He writes. I, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to live a life worthy of your calling, to which you have been called. Now, I usually don't bring into a sermon something that the Biblical scholars wrote in their commentaries. In this instance, however, it is significant. Because more and more solid, scriptural scholars are seeing that this letter to the Ephesians is a circular letter, meaning that it was circulated to other infant churches. It was not exclusively written for the Ephesians. Why? Perhaps these other beginning churches were all having those same kinds of issues. Perhaps we are too. The letter was similarly meant to be read to future churches the shepherd of Haysville, for example. You too have been called by God. So what does being called by God mean? <coughs> that is an audacious question. Now let me respond to preaching about one of my favorite fictional characters, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Now, I like that BBC version the best with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Now, Sherlock Holmes is one of the most brilliant people in the world, a detective who solves crimes through his sheer genius of observing facts and making logical deductions. He's usually right about his deductions on the first go around. Now, he eventually rents a place at that familiar address, 221B, Baker Street, London. Then he finds himself in the necessity of a flatmate in order to help him pay the rent. And he comes across who he concludes would make a suitable flatmate in Dr. John Watson. Well, they begin to solve crimes together. And it is clear that these two guys have a professional relationship. They solve crimes. Watson finds Holmes literally fascinating, amazing, a genius. But Watson also finds Holmes to be a heartless person. That is putting it mildly. For instance, in one episode, ironically, Sherlock cluelessly and then uncaringly states, alone is what I have. Alone protects me. In another episode, he coldly declares not anti-social, I'm (laughs) anti-idiot. Though Sherlock is a genius. He is so disconnected
1: from reality
0: that you can hardly claim what he does as living. He exists. He exists only to solve crime. Now, in the famous episode, The Hound's Baskerville, in a pub fire, in a pub by fire, John is trying to help Sherlock work through the experiences of that night where he saw the imaginary hound. Sherlock is so <coughs> discombobulated in his anxiety that he is holding a drink and shaking, So John compassionately tries to calm him down. And Sherlock gives him a stare. And John exasperatedly speaks, well, why would you listen to me? I'm just your friend. Sherlock barks back, I don't have friends. Now, eventually, Sherlock discovers that he does in fact need people. He does in fact need friends. It's obvious we're not a detective agency here. We are the body of Christ, aka also known as the church. Christ is the head, analogous to the brain of the church. So we are all connected. We are all called. This is not the building where individuals come in to get their spiritual ticket stamped and then leave. Though important, the bricks and the mortar, the carpeting, the glass, the floor, the walls, and the ceiling are not what this is primarily about. This is the body of Christ, where we are all called to be a part of the body so that the body works properly. In other words, like Sherlock, we need each other can take it to a deeper level and more personal. It means that those of us who think of ourselves as more spiritual than others need to come down from our holier-than-thou home. Likewise, it means that those of us who feel so unspiritual need to get off of our metaphorical crutch. I'm not doing anything because we feel so unworthy and everybody else is so hypocritical. Of course you're hypocritical. Of course you're unworthy. Of course I'm hypocritical. Of course I'm unworthy. And maybe that is why... St. Paul wrote those letters to those first churches. This is not about being super spiritual. It's about this stuff. We all have it. This stuff. Flesh. You find it interesting that the images that St. Paul uses in so many of his letters... One of the most popular is the body, flesh. The body is, in St. Paul's language, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped. Oh, what a challenge to the church that can be. Because sometimes we do not all get along. For instance, There are differences from how we interpret Scripture or understand the prayer. (laughs) Yet working together is different from agreeing on everything all the time. Working together is significant to being a member of the church. That is one of my motives for putting together another mission trip to New Orleans. Let me just preach this. It does not matter your interpretation of the scriptures or your understanding of the prayer book, and I'm going to go way out on a limb here. Does not matter your politics. When you see people who no longer have home, when you see people who have no food, when you pound nails together, when you stock a food pantry together, something or rather someone Changes. You and I are changed. And the differences in all of us just don't make that big of a difference anymore. Just as St. Paul uses that earthly image of flesh, St. John uses the earthly image of food. The 5,000 people ate the bread of the earth before they could even hear about the bread of heaven. They were physically starving, and then their stomachs were filled. They were also spiritually starving because their spirits were empty. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Unworthy as we all are. It doesn't matter. Jesus still calls us to be a part of the body Christ. Unworthy as we all are, it does not matter. Jesus still calls us to the altar to be fed.